Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to Dimming the Gaslight. My name is Mac and I'm so excited to be back for another episode. Um, I wanted to extend a special thank you to all of you guys who are listening because this podcast, um, the listenership is growing rapidly. Um, I can't believe this idea I had just a little while ago is catching on like this, Uh, but it's really so gratifying to know that you guys can relate to what I'm going through. Um, I'm getting a lot of messages on Instagram saying things like, you know, I can't wait for the next episode and, you know, I want more and, you know, you guys don't know how much that means to me. Um, you really, really, really are so awesome and I'm so excited that you guys are going to share this journey with me. Um, if you guys do want to share the journey of your own, um, you're more than welcome to come on the show. Please email me at dimmingthegaslight at gmail.com. Um, I've already actually recorded a few people and you guys are going to be blown away by some of these stories that I've already recorded. Um, please subscribe for future episodes. I need you to rate. I need you to review. I need you to share. Um, I really want to get the word out there and let's keep growing this thing. Um, also, if you want to follow me, you can follow me at dimming underscore the underscore gaslight on Instagram. And also, uh, I've gotten a few messages of people who have like additional questions on Instagram. So if you guys have some questions about the story, if certain things weren't clear, or if you wanted some follow-up answers, you can message me and I'll do my best to answer you guys. But um, listen, thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart. You guys are really doing great things and I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for helping me get the word out there and let's let's keep it going. Um, also, I want to say for this next episode... All right. It's going to be a little heavier than the other ones I put out. Um, I did say, you know, on previous episodes that the topic is going to be dark and some of the stories are going to be disturbing. Um, And I've said that this podcast is marked as explicit content um, because it's real, you know, and I'm honest with you guys. And I want to say from my point of view, um, I'm on the path to recovery. Okay, so telling these stories, it doesn't have the same sting as it did when it happened. Um, So I'm sharing these stories to show people that, you know, you can go through this and you can get through this, Um, even especially if you've gone through similar things. It's okay, You know, it wasn't your fault. You know, we can move on despite what's being done to us. Okay, so um, this episode is going to be a little heavier. I hope you'll stick with me. Um, I feel the need to preface that. Um, But, you know, we've all we you know, you guys can identify with it with the situation. So 
Um, here we go. So on the last episode, um, I got up to my wedding, um, if you remember, and I left it on a cliffhanger and I said that the wedding was perfect. Um, and I said that narcissists find a way to sabotage the perfect day. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we've all had experiences with that. So um, what I mean by that, okay, is that she found a way to sabotage things because she thought her family was the best thing since sliced bread, okay? Um, and my family paled in comparison. So I always mentioned in a previous episode that uh, I, I also mentioned in a previous episode that um, I had an older sister that I was never really close with until we got older and she had kids because I'm really good with kids. Um, so my sister and I had a huge fallout and over what we had the fallout, uh, I'm going to keep that personal because it's not about her. Okay. Um, but just know that it was an ugly situation and my ex and my sister had issues because of this situation. So my ex and I, I was persuaded uh, we decided we didn't, we weren't going to invite my sister to my wedding. Okay. And this caused an issue with my mother and my mother's side of the family because no one was told why my sister wasn't there at the wedding. Um, so I was protecting a secret for her, for my sister against my will, but my family didn't know that. And they just thought that I was kind of a jerk for not inviting her. Um, so prior to getting there, I didn't know this, but there was this animosity towards me before the wedding for not inviting my sister. Um, they knew that we were fighting, but they didn't know what the fallout was about. And it, you know, I didn't want to tell them because I was protecting a secret for her. Um, but our wedding essentially became this big kiss ass fest for my nexus side of the family. And, you know, basically her whole life, like, you know how in, um, most cultures, like there's like a daughter daddy dance, like, you know, you dance with your daddy or whatever. Well, she had two of those and she had two of them to the same damn song. So she did it twice. Um, and like, it was just this whole long thing about like how great her side of the family was. And really it wasn't like about the like families coming together. It was just about like, I don't know how great she was. And, you know, her brother did the readings and um, it was just nothing about my family. And, uh, I remember my stepmother telling me this story later on where she was like, um, you know, I asked your, your wife at the time. And I said, when you were walking down the aisle, there is this great pick of Mac and he's biting his lips and he has these glassy, glassy eyes. And he was saying like, uh, you know, my stepmother was telling my wife at the time was saying like, he was so emotional seeing you walk down the aisle. And how did you not cry when you were walking. And she said some bullshit like, oh, I just looked at my daddy, you know? And like, it was like, well, you know, you weren't marrying your daddy. You were marrying your husband, you know? And um, it wasn't about me. It was about the spectacle. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about her. It was, wasn't about us. It was about the spectacle of our wedding and the attention that she was getting because she was getting married. Um, and you know, everyone could see that who was there. Um, so after the wedding, when we got the wedding video, like we got the wedding video from the videographer, um, an aunt of mine wrote a comment on Facebook under the wedding video saying, where's your family Mac? <clears throat> Excuse me. She said, where's your family Mac? And listen, I admit that was petty. Okay. She shouldn't have done that. 
Um, but then my next wrote back this long scathing message on Facebook while I was at work to my aunt. And I didn't see this until hours later after I got home from work. So by the time I saw it, it escalated so badly that my entire family knew what had happened, you know, with my ex and what the things that she was saying to my aunt. So it got really ugly. And keep in mind, they were already mad at me for not inviting my sister to the wedding. So ultimately, um, I became estranged from my entire family because of this situation. And it still stands to this day because, you know, they don't know that I'm going through a divorce now. And you know what? They probably tell you, tell me, I told you so, you know, like they'd probably be like, oh, you know, if they heard I was getting divorced, they'd probably say, I told you so. Um, but yeah, I lost communication with my sister, with my mother, my mother's side of the family. And, uh, you know, it still stands to this day because the breakup wasn't really that long ago. Um, so other than losing, you know, everybody in my life since the time I was born, um, life was good actually after the marriage. Um, we went to Antigua for our honeymoon. Um, honestly, I can tell you like that might've been the best week of my life. It was paradise on the beach and, um, you know, a lot of sex and, uh, you know, great food and great ambiance. And it was just awesome. And I don't even think like we argued. Um, I did at one point need like a break from her and I went for a walk. I think I found like this like a uh, common area cafe type thing to like watch American TV or something like that. But it was really awesome. We didn't have any fights. I can't remember anything like that. Um, and honestly, um, neither of us wanted to wait on having a baby. Um, I mentioned in the last podcast that I always wanted this family that I never had. Um, and I think we were both in a rush to make that happen. I felt like, you know, my biological clock was ticking. Um, she was a few years older than me, so she probably felt the same way. And at the time, like, we were in our early 30s, so it was pretty much all in our heads, but it's what we wanted. We wanted to have a baby. So, I mean, essentially... Well, we got back from our honeymoon and, um, you know, still so it was, it was about having a baby. And, um, so here's, here's a story I'm going to share with you guys. Um, it was sex around the clock and she would answer the door when I came home from work naked and my son, um, was conceived on a chair in the living room and I... I was looking out the window and thinking, this isn't going to last forever. And I remember thinking, she's only doing this because she wants a baby. Um, not because she's into me. Not because she loves me. I was just thinking, this isn't going to last forever. And that's not a thought you want to have when you're trying to make a baby. You want to be like lost in the moment. But I was not. I was preoccupied with thinking, this is superficial. Um, so she got pregnant, um, and so we went to her family's house on Fridays for pizza, and um, there was one day, we, it was me, her, her mother and father, and we were eating pizza, and I don't know how it came up in conversation, 
But her mother said something along the lines of, when I take the baby out of you and I put him on your chest, like some rite of passage type thing. And I remember sitting there and gulping my pizza going, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, my mom's going to be in the delivery room with us. And I said, when did that happen? Why wasn't this discussed with me? And my next in front of her parents goes, it was discussed with you. And I said, okay, so hold on. So you're telling me that I, you and I discussed this and I said it was okay for your mother to be in the delivery room with us. And all of a sudden now I'm, I'm backtracking on that. No, this never happened. We didn't have this, this talk. Um, and I didn't know what to do. Because I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I never got along with her mother. Um, And her mother, uh, she smokes like two or three packs of cigarettes a day. And the only image I can get in my head was her cigarette-stained fingers pulling my baby, holding my baby before I did, or my wife did, and placing him on her chest, where like I felt like the birth of our first child should have been about a husband and wife and the family that we were bringing into the world. And she felt that she expressed to me many times that she was pushing a watermelon out of her and she needed all the support she can get. And I said, I should be all the support you need, but I wasn't. And she needed her mother there. And that was a point of contention for nine months of fighting about this. Um, and her mother was at every single doctor's appointment, every single ultrasound. Um, it was just everything. And somehow her mother and the gynecologist created this relationship where they were like, busting each other's chops every visit. And like, um, you know, her mother would tell the guy like, how many babies you delivered? You know, like two, like, you know, she would say something like, you know, to my wife, she'd be like, what'd you get a coupon for this place? And she would like bust his balls. And then the, the gyna would come back and be like, um, you know, she would, he would say something like, oh, well, you're not necessary to be there or something like that. And I would be like, yeah, right. And like, but the gyna was also kind of rude to me. Like, um, you know, he, he would like come in in the delivery room and be like, what are you here for? And I'd be like, uh, to support my wife. And he'd be like, oh, you're not necessary. Like stuff like that. And just real bad bedside manner, in my opinion. Um, and then we had a, like a gender reveal as people do. And, um, so when we did the gender reveal, um, I'll spare you the details of how the gender reveal, what we did. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, is that we found out with the gender reveal that we were having a boy. And I was over the moon because when I, when I expressed that I've always wanted a family, I admit, I always thought of having a boy first. I always wanted a boy that I can play, you know, catch with and I can hit the baseballs with and we can play video games and we can you know, watch Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters and whatever he wants to get into, you know, listen to the same music. I always wanted a boy, you know, I did. 
and I admit it. So we found out that we were having a boy and her mother got up, walked outside, smoked a cigarette and cried her eyes out because she wanted a girl. And instead of my wife sitting there and celebrating that we were having a boy, she went outside to comfort her mother for having a girl, for not having a girl. And I was like, fuck her. Like, I'm not, I don't care. Like you wanted a girl. She's like, oh, well, I want to do the flowers and the bows and the this and the that. And I was like, so what? Like, so what? That's your grandkid. You should love your grandkid no matter what sex he is, no matter what gender he is. And she literally stole the celebration out of us having a boy, which I was pissed. Um, so during the pregnancy, like I was super supportive. Um, I would put like cocoa butter on her belly. And uh, my wife is a very big fan of like steak and potatoes. So I would get like filet mignon and stuff. And I would, you know, um, you know, I would get lobster tail and, you know, I would, I wanted to feed that baby good. You know, I, I used to say like, bake that baby, bake that baby. Cause I wanted him to come out strong, you know? Um, but she was always moody. She would always say I didn't do enough for her. Would always say, you know, I can't relate because I'm not the one carrying the baby and I don't know what she's going through and all the morning sickness and everything like that. And, um, so, you know, I always had a goal of, um, running the New York city marathon. I always wanted to run the New York city marathon and I had registered for the marathon prior to finding out that she was pregnant and I was accepted. So during her pregnancy, I was training for the marathon and any runner who has run a marathon, um, you know that a marathon is not run at the marathon. There's all these training sessions that are long and they're tough. And, you know, like I went like seven or eight weeks of every week, like every Saturday running a half marathon and training. And uh, every week she would go up to her parents because I would be out for two, three hours, you know, four hours running. And she would go up to her parents. But I was running in the summer sometimes. It'd be like 90 degrees out. And I'd be like, hey, can you, I would text her and be like, oh, can you bring me a Gatorade or, can, you know, can you bring me a banana or something? And she'd be like, oh no, I'm throwing up in my parents' uh, bathroom right now. And I'd be like, okay. I'm like, well, um, you know, I just talked to you a little while ago and you didn't have any morning sickness or anything like that. And it's literally 90 degrees and I am cramping up and dehydrating. You know, I'd appreciate if like, you know, could you bring me a Gatorade or like, I should have in retrospect, I should have brought some money and stopped at a store or something when I was running. Bad idea now that I'm just thinking about it. But anyway, just completely unsupportive. Um, and, you know, for me, that marathon was like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, but I don't think she wanted to show me support because like I said, I had this, um, like uplifting mentality where I wanted to do things on a bucket list and I wanted to better myself. And I think she was jealous in a way. I don't think she, you know, was capable of any self-improvement in her life. Um, and you know, she just couldn't care less. But the interesting thing is, <laughs> so the day of the actual New York City Marathon, um, I had a friend whose father was um, a big like New York traveler and he worked in New York and he knew his way around New York late and stuff like that. So 
anybody who wanted to support me, he kind of was like their tour guide, my friend's father. And um, so people, you know, I had friends, I had like a group of people who came out to watch me run the marathon. And, you know, there was certain pit stops that I would meet them at. And there's all these pictures of the day of the marathon of my ex crying and like she's wearing a sweatshirt that says my husband ran the New York City Marathon and she's like crying with such pride. And I remember like running and being like, where was this when I was freaking 95 degrees out, sweating, cramping, and you couldn't even bring me a Gatorade and now you want to act like you're so proud because you're around people. Um, So that was that, you know, the New York City Marathon. Um, and then, so after the marathon, it was, uh, my birthday was actually shortly after that. And, uh, we went to, um, she got, because I love New York. Um, even though I'm from Jersey, uh, I love New York and I love traveling around New York and, um, sightseeing and trying different restaurants and stuff. So, uh, for my birthday, she got us a hotel room in New York and, um, it was cool. She got a, uh, helicopter ride around like, um, lower Manhattan. Uh, which was fun, you know? Um, so I guess, I don't know, I guess you can call that love bombing again or a Hoover attempt maybe because, um, you know, there was, there was all this animosity about having the baby and being unsupportive about me running a marathon. Um, and I think she was trying to, I don't know, make it up to me somehow, I guess. But, um, So after my birthday, we were sitting around and um, we had a name picked out for our baby. And I had bought all this stuff for the nursery and I had bought blankets and signs and this, that, and the other thing. Um, And about eight and a half months into the pregnancy, her mother started making fun of the name that we had chosen for our baby. And I was like, oh no, she's going to change the name. My, 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 well, she's going to convince my wife to change the name. And sure as hell, about eight and a half months into it, my wife calls me on the phone and says, I don't want to call him that anymore. And I said, why? And she's like, well, you can't call him a nickname. And I said, so what? And she's like, no, I don't want to go with it. Um, so we changed his name and, uh, all because of her mother's doing. Um, so the day of my son's birth, um, you know, her water broke and we made it to the hospital and, her mother was with us for, I think it was like 17 plus hours of labor. And she just fought with me the whole way. Like, do you have any experience with children? What's your experience with children? Have you taken any parenting classes? How come you didn't take Lamaze classes? Did you, like just endless just obnoxiousness. Like, oh, thank God your swimmers swim. Good thing you didn't have to adopt a baby. Like just all this stuff. And like, uh, just fighting with me, just constantly just being annoying. And there was a certain point where I got sick of it. And there was like a futon in the delivery room. 
And I laid down, my wife was in the bed, my mother-in-law, call her my monster-in-law, was on one side of the bed. And I laid down on this futon with my back towards them, not to sleep, but just more to mentally compose myself. And I'll never forget it. Her mother goes, we can leave if we're bothering you. And I turned around on the futon and I stand up and I go, shut up. And she's like, what? And I go, enough. This is the birth of our child. You've been taking shots at me the whole time. And I'm not going to take it anymore. I don't care if she wants you here or not. Shut up. And my next goes, don't tell my mother to shut up. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is the birth of our child. I'm allowing her to be here. I will not allow her to talk to me like that. And my ex goes, why don't you leave? And I said, why don't I leave? This is the birth of my child, our child. This should be about us. And she's like, so she told me to leave. And I went outside and I called my friend and I told him what was happening. and He just couldn't believe it. And he's like, dude, do not miss the birth of your child. I said, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And I went back upstairs. And those cigarette-stained fingers held my baby before I did. She pulled the baby out. She put him on the chest, like some rite of damn passage. I cut the cord. um, And you know those pictures that people take when, you know, you just have a baby and it's the happy husband and wife picture. Well, our first one was with her mom too. And, uh, I was told by my necks for a long time that that was very normal. And I was making a big deal out of nothing. And I tried to make the birth of our child about me where she was the one, like I said, pushing a watermelon out of her and I didn't have any sympathy for it. I wasn't being supportive because I didn't want her mother who I can't stand, to hold my baby before I did. And she did anyway. So after that, excuse me, after that, I was pissed. And I knew that my ex was not going to validate my emotions. And she was not going to validate my problem with the way my son was born. So I said, screw it. And I told my monster-in-law to meet me at Starbucks for a conversation. And she did. And I just verbalized to her. I didn't yell at her. I didn't curse at her. I didn't do anything I shouldn't have done. I just verbalized to her how unacceptable she behaved at the birth of my child, because I think she needed to know. And what she did was, is her mother, no one else was there besides us. And it was in a public place. And I did it on purpose in a public place because, you know, I didn't want her claiming I yelled at her and I didn't want she her yelling at me. But she went back to the family, her mother, and, her mother did, and told everybody that I berated her in this Starbucks. And... I've gone through therapy and talked about this and my therapist have told me, no, you did the right thing. You should have taken her to Starbucks. That's the birth of your child. And you were not wrong for how you felt about, you know, the birth of your child should have gone. So it was very, very contentious in the home 
where it should have been a beautiful thing, um, you know, but everything, everything after my son was born had to be done on FaceTime. So his first bath, all his feedings, his first poop, his first nail clippings, whatever it was had to be done on FaceTime with her family. And I was the one who had to sit there and hold the phone and roll my eyes going, I can't believe this is happening. How does she not get this? And it wasn't, it felt like it wasn't my baby. It felt like it was their baby. And I was, like I said, I wanted to create this family and I felt like she was stealing it from me. And I don't, and I don't know. So, um, so Mother's Day came around, okay? And I wanted Mother's Day to be the point of reconciliation because what I wanted to do is I wanted to show her, I love you. This is your first Mother's Day. And maybe if I show you how much I love you and how much I care about you, you know, you'll understand how much this means to me with this family. Um, so I took my son in the bassinet. He was only about two months old and I put a crayon in his hand and I just took a piece of construction paper and I made a picture with his hand and scribbled all over it. And it still to this day hangs on my wife's mirror. Um, the card says, happy mother's day, mommy. Um, daddy says you're smoking hot. So I left the window open for you. <laughs> And, uh, so that still is on her mirror in the house. Um, and I made a bubble bath for her. Um, and I got chocolate covered strawberries and I put the chocolate covered strawberries on the, on the toilet seat next to the bath. But, uh, I had chocolate covered strawberries and roses in the bathroom with her. Um, then I took her for a massage and for lunch. And then I took her purse shopping at Michael Kors for all you ladies out there. I took a purse shopping at Michael Kors. And we had an amazing Mother's Day. And wouldn't you know it, on the way back from purse shopping, she goes, I wish I got to see my mother for Mother's Day. And I said, well, we still can. And she's like, well, it's late. And I was like, let's go. So what? Tell them you're coming. And it didn't matter all the things that I did. It was about her mom. Even the fact that I made Mother's Day about her, her first Mother's Day, it was still about her family. Now, my first Father's Day, um, she, well, it was the day before Father's Day. And um, we, at the time, were watching that TV show uh, called Wahlburgers with like, you know, Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg and the other guys and how they were making like a burger restaurant, whatever. We, it was just like something to watch when we were together and we were watching the show, Wahlburgers it was called. And, uh, so she took me to, um, New York, uh, it's called Coney Island. If you guys know anything about Coney Island, some of you might've heard of it. Um, it's basically like a beach area with like a nice boardwalk and there was a Wahlburgers restaurant out there. So uh, she took me to Wahlburgers for my first Father's Day and just to walk on the beach. But she did that for Father's Day, but it was the day before Father's Day, okay? And now I feel like I'm – when I tell this story, I feel like I'm the narcissist, but I know that I'm not. Her actual 
actual Father's Day was a barbecue at our home for her dad and my dad. My dad did come for her dad and my dad. And I was the cook. So my first Father's Day, real Father's Day, was spent cooking for her dad. And nobody saw a problem with that. Nobody said, oh, you know, what can we do for Mac? Nobody said anything like that, you know. Um, and when I expressed to her that it wasn't really Father's Day, you, you made real Father's Day about your dad, of course I was ungrateful. And, you know, we were still just fighting around the clock after the baby was born. Um, and yeah, every feeding, every poop, everything had to be done on FaceTime with her family. Still, it's ridiculous. Um, our first wedding anniversary came around and uh, we had frozen the um, wedding topper, the cake topper on top of, you know, our wedding cake because, you know, it's supposed to be some symbolism thing that you're supposed to have the cake or something after your one year anniversary. Um, she had thrown it out. Uh, I was going to do some, you know, I don't know what I was going to do. I was going to do some romantic, you know, one year wedding anniversary thing. But um, she had thrown out the wedding topper and it was just fighting. So I was like, you know what? You know, I've, I've tried to, to, you know, I think I've shown you guys in some of these episodes, like I'm a romantic guy. I try and be romantic and I tried to do that kind of stuff. And uh, I just said, forget it. What was the point? Um, so, um, now it was 4th of July. Okay. And I came to her on the 4th of July and I said, listen, I don't want to spend 4th of July with your family. I said, I would like to find a parade. I would like to go to the beach. I would like to go to like a friend's barbecue, anything but spend this with your family. And I came to her and I said, listen, like, you got to understand at a certain point, you're going to have to bend. It can't all be about your family. And um, so she actually agreed. She actually agreed on 4th of July that it wouldn't be, we wouldn't spend time with her family. And I was so excited. That was on the 3rd of July when we had that discussion. On the actual 4th of July, I wake up in the morning, pour my coffee, and I get my phone buzzes, goes, meh, meh, and I read the text, and I'm in a group text with her family. And the group text is her, and she texted everybody in the group text and said, what are the plans for today? With me in the group text. And I look at this, and I go, are you fucking kidding me? And I went to her, and I go, what is this? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, you just texted everybody. What are the plans for today? And she goes, oh, I'm just asking. It wasn't like I was really going to hang out with them. And I go, then why text them? And she's like, again, I wasn't going to hang out with them. I'm like, what are our plans for today? She goes, I don't know. And I was like, so why didn't you ask me what our plans are? Why are you asking them when you're not even going to hang out with them? And she's like, oh, I don't know why you're getting so mad about this. And I was like, you know what? I'm out. And she's like, what? And I was like, I'm leaving for the day. And she's like, where are you going? And I said, I don't know, but I won't be here with you. And I left. And I had a friend and we're still trying to figure out whether he was moving in or moving out of an apartment on the 4th of July. But I called him and I said, do you need help moving? And he's like, yeah. 
And I was like, I'm in, man. And he's like, it's the 4th of July, really? I was like, yeah, I'm going to help you move. And I went there um, and I helped him. And uh, I stayed there most of the day. And she and I were fighting in text messages and her saying, you know, I can't believe you would ruin this holiday and it's supposed to be about us. And I told you it was going to be about us. And I was just so pissed. I was so pissed that she asked her family, what are the plans for today? And she couldn't understand why I had a problem with that. Um, so later that night, I got home and we were fighting the whole time, the whole day. And I get home and she's not home and it's like nine o'clock at night. And at the time, she's got like my five month old son out at like fireworks which isn't good for a baby's ears. And it's nine o'clock at night. Why is a five month old out at night? And I'm just so pissed. And she gets home and we are screaming at each other in each other's faces, screaming at each other. Okay. And we were saying some nasty, nasty shit. And I was too. I admit, I was saying some horrible, nasty, you know, you're a bad mom. I can't believe you would keep him out like this. Just horrible shit. And everything got so volatile that we could see there was going to be no, I don't know, common understanding. There was going to be no common ground where we could come to. And at this point, I said to her, I could get a divorce right now because I get nothing from this. But I didn't mean it. Well, I did mean it, but I couldn't get a divorce. I should have left at this point. This is when I should have left. But who would have left with a six-month-old baby that you had waited your whole life for, you have tried to show this person that you love them, and they have constantly rejected you, constantly demeaned you, devalued you, but I couldn't leave and I wanted to, but I couldn't do it. So after that, um, we started marriage counseling and, um, it was again, volatile. Because I would sit in these marriage counselors and I would explain this situation. And I had a marriage counselor who was telling me I wasn't being understanding. <laughs> she would tell me, well, she did have to push a watermelon out of herself. And why weren't you more supportive? And I was like, are you kidding me? Because she was telling the story from her perspective. So one of these sessions, <clears throat> she comes in and she tells the counselor that she believes that I'm bipolar <clears throat> because of my explosive reaction to being neglected. And I've learned now what I know about narcissistic personality disorder is that this is very common for them to claim that the spouse, you know, their accuser is bipolar. So the therapist referred us to a psychiatrist. And I was like, I'm not bipolar. I'm not bipolar. I am not being listened to. I am not being heard. And I, I'm 
no one's paying any attention to anything I'm saying. And I went to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist saw that I was just fed up with the situation. And I wanted to stick with the family. I wanted to make the family work. I wanted to keep my child, but I didn't want to be diagnosed as bipolar because that is not the problem. I didn't know what the problem was, but I knew I wasn't bipolar. And the way it was proposed to me was that I need to take medication because if I wasn't bipolar, then it would have no effect on me. And if it had no effect on me, then what had I lost? I had just taken the medication. And I said, that is a really piss poor reason to do this because I didn't want to take psychiatric medication. But I did. I took it on the grounds that I was doing it for the betterment of my marriage. Okay. So I had taken the medication and a few days later, I was eating an empanada out of a food truck in New York. And all of a sudden, my whole body felt so hot. And I was like, what is going on right now? And I looked down at my, the top of my hand, and I had all these red dots on my hand. And I was like, what is going on? And I started getting really hot and really itchy. So I got my car, and I left, and I started heading home. And on the way home, it felt like taking a dial, like on a thermostat or something, and just turning the heat up. And I was getting hotter and hotter and redder and redder. And I'm looking at my body, and my whole body is breaking out in red dots. And I'm going, what is going on? So I pulled over at a gas station, and I got some Benadryl. And I was like, I think I'm having an allergic reaction to this medication. So I took the Benadryl and I drove home. By the time I got home, it looked like my body was covered in chicken pox. If you remember chicken pox, if you're a kid of the 90s like me, it looked like I was covered in chicken pox. What I learned is, so I went to, I told my wife at the time, I said, look at this. And she said, oh my God. And I said, look what you're doing to me. And she said, what is this from? And I was like, the fucking medication you have me on. And I said, I feel my throat is closing up. I said, I'm so nervous right now. And so she took a picture of me and I was like, I think I got to go to the hospital. And she's like, I think you should. And I said, are you coming with me? And she's like, not with the baby. And I was like, so you did this to me. I'm covered in hives. And I wish I could show you guys the picture, but I'm going to keep it personal because I'm protecting my anonymity. But I was covered in head-to-toe hives, and I went to the hospital, and they said I had what's called a sulfa reaction. Unbeknownst to me, I was allergic to sulfa, and the medication that I was taking had sulfa in it. So I went back. You know, I, I let the reaction dissipate, and uh, we went back to the marriage counselor, and we told her, and we said, look at what this did to me. And she said, wow. And she was just shocked because she had never seen this happen before. And my next, in her infinite wisdom, goes, well, you're still bipolar. And I said, what? And she goes, we got to get you on something new. And I was like, no, please don't do this to me. And so they put me on something else. And I took it. And this one made my hair fall out. 
So I've had an allergic reaction and now my hair was falling out. I didn't go bald, but it was the kind of situation where you can run your hands through the hair in the shower and put your hair against the wall, that kind of gross thing. My hair fell out and I was like, so I went back to the marriage counselor and I said, at what point are you people going to be satisfied? What do I have to go through for you guys to be satisfied? I said, because I'm not doing this anymore. I will go through marriage counseling. I will not take anything else. And uh, it was really dark because I was being accused of something that I knew I wasn't. The way it was being presented to me was that if I took the medication and nothing happened, that I didn't have it. And I didn't have it. Um, so that was my marriage counseling story. One of them anyway. Um, so in between marriage counseling sessions, um, I would be working and, uh, I would get home from work and she would never be home <laughs> when I got home from work. She would always be at her parents' house and I'd get home around like say four, four thirty-five o'clock. Um, and you know, I got home from work and all I'd want to do is see my son that I haven't seen all day. And she wouldn't get back until seven, eight o'clock at night. Um, and I was getting really pissed. It, there was just no sympathy, no her trying to help me, anything like that. And then, so one day, I get home from work, and she is home. And my aunt was there uh, from my dad's side of the family. My aunt was there, and she was playing with my son and my wife. And um, my wife had made some like pulled pork or something in the uh, crock pot. And I was eating a sandwich and my aunt goes to, I mean, I'm sorry, my, my wife goes to my aunt, can you come here for a second? And they go down the hallway and I'm sitting there eating my pulled pork sandwich and, you know, playing with my son. And they come back and they go, well, my wife goes, I don't know how to tell you this. And I was like, what is she about to tell me? And she's like, your mom just died. And I said, what? And she said, your mom just died. And I said, how'd she die? Because I was estranged from her. And I said, how'd she die? And she said, pancreatic cancer. And I said, oh my God. And I said, how do you know? And she said, my sister and my wife had a mutual friend on Facebook. And the mutual friend posted something to my sister's wall about, I'm sorry for your loss. And my wife saw it. So I found out that my mom died through a Facebook post. And at this time, as you can imagine, it threw me through a tailspin. Um, and uh, I didn't get to say goodbye. Um, my mother didn't want to say goodbye to me because of, you know, the hardship that I was putting her through, I guess, with the whole situation with my sister. And um, I got to say, this is what stopped the fighting between my wife and I, was my mom dying. Because, I mean, I hate to say she has a heart, but like how much farther could this go? You know, how much more could I be put through? So I don't really remember much after that. Um, I've kind of compartmentalized a lot, but it wasn't long. 
before she started talking about having another baby. And I steadfastly did not want another baby after all I had been through. Um, I also had this phobia of, uh, I didn't have a good relationship with my sister. So I was worried, you know, that my son, whoever he had, if he had a brother or a sister, maybe they wouldn't have a good relationship. And I expressed this to my wife at the time, but she didn't care that I expressed that, but she wanted another baby. And, um, I didn't want one, but she started making me take these, um, big pills that tasted awful. I dare I say they tasted like semen. They were awful. They were disgusting. And I had to take these pills because she claimed that it would improve my swimmers. And she said my swimmers weren't good, which I don't know where she got that idea from. Um, but here's another dark story for you guys, (laughs) unfortunately. So I, you know, like I said, I ran the New York city marathon and I, you know, I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I would exercise and I would get on the treadmill. And, um, when she was ovulating, you know, when you're, when you're on the treadmill at five o'clock in the morning, when you wake up at five o'clock in the morning to work out, you're not thinking of anything other than rolling out of bed, putting on your gym clothes and working out. But when she was ovulating, she would follow me into the basement where the treadmill was and tell me I had to have sex with her. And I would say, no, no, I am getting on the treadmill. That is not what my focus is now. It'll ruin my, my workout. And I said, it doesn't feel genuine. It doesn't feel genuine. You're forcing me to do this. And I would say, no. And she would say, you have to, because I'm ovulating and the window is so tight that you have to do it. And I would be like, no, I don't want to. And um, physiologically, I would have issues doing it. But I did it. I made it work. And then in the same day, I came upstairs and um, it was snowing. And, uh, I had a company car at the time and, uh, I, she had like a delayed opening for work and I had a company car at the time and I, I got in the car and I went to leave and, um, I pulled out of the driveway and I had a flat tire and I was like, Oh shoot. So I got back in the house and, uh, because I had a flat tire, I was going to change it myself. I had a company car and it was like, I could call AAA, you know, I could call roadside assistance and, and they would replace my tire in the snow. So I wasn't about to do it. I'm like, I'm just going to chill and be late to work. I don't care. Um, and she goes, okay, well I'm heading out to work with my son and she was going to drop him off at daycare. I said, okay, have a good day. And I gave her a kiss goodbye. Okay. It's a snowstorm. She goes outside. Oh, and I had started the car for her. So the car was warm. She goes outside. She puts my son in the car and comes back in and gets naked. And I go, what are you doing? And she's like, I told you, I'm ovulating. And I said, I don't care. You're not putting my son in the car in a snowstorm. I was like, this is not happening. And she's like, again, you have to do this. And I said, I don't want to. This doesn't feel genuine. And again, physiologically, I couldn't do it. And then I made it work. Um, so listen, I've told this story now being out of the relationship to a couple people and everybody has told me, listen, you know, to say this is rape is difficult, but it's definitely sexual coercion and under any of the circumstances, no means no. Right. And I said, no, and this was a violation, you know? I felt violated, but that's how my daughter was conceived. 
Now, again, we get in the car. You know, we find out she's pregnant. And you know what? We found out she was pregnant. We went to go walk around because she was so nervous that she, the, like, the pregnancy wasn't going to stick, which was like this unfounded nervousness where she shouldn't have thought it wasn't going to stick. I don't know why she did. She was trying to act like we were having problems conceiving, which we didn't at all. Um, but I remember we went to, like, the mall to, like, walk around with my son so that, like, she could, like, kind of calm down and get out of her own head. And she took, like, a, uh, she took a pregnancy test with her to the mall and did the pregnancy test in the mall. So like as unceremoniously as it could be unceremonious as it could be. Um, I found out in front of like a Sephora or something that I was having another child. And I was like, Oh God, (laughs) I wasn't happy. I wasn't excited. I was scared. I was scared. So she had already bought like a shirt for my son that said, you know, expecting big brother or something like that. And guess what? We got in the car to go drive up to her parents and tell them. And listen, I couldn't help myself. And I said to her, is this delivery going to go like the last one? And you know what she said? She goes, yep. She goes, my mom's going to be there again. And I said, oh no, she's not. She goes, yes, she is. And not only is she going to be there, but you're going to sign something that says it's okay for her to be there. And I said, over my dead body, there is not a chance in hell I would ever sign anything like that. And she couldn't make me, but I said no. (sighs) But the second delivery was the same way as the first. The only difference is the second delivery only lasted like 30 minutes because it was the second kid, maybe an hour. The baby came out much quicker. The first one was like 17 plus hours. Thankfully, this one was like an hour. It was much easier and the animosity, you know, was kept down at least. Um, so after my daughter was born, um, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was at a loss. Um, and Again, I wasn't as mad about the first one because the second one wasn't as bad because of just the time, but I was upset, obviously, that her mom was there. Um, And we just couldn't get along. We couldn't get along. And uh, we were just fighting all the time. And at this point, I was fed up. Um, I think we went probably close to a year without having sex again. Um, So I knew that, you know, it was used for children, I felt like. Um, and she would say, the reason we're not having sex is because I'm so mean to her, because I'm so angry at because of the things that happened. And she would withhold sex from me for about a year. Um, and I was so just fed up with the volatility and how bad things have gotten and all of the things that she did. And, um, you know, my tongue started getting really nasty. I would curse and yell and just be nasty and mean. And Uh, I called her ugly and I said that she was a bad mom and I said she was a bad wife and I said that her sex was weak and I would say, um, you know, I get nothing from this relationship and um, I was just fed up, you know, and I've said several times on this podcast, I'm not proud of it, you know, I turned into a person I didn't want to be. I was angry. I was sad. I was lonely. I was overwhelmed. It was just too much. Um, So shortly after that, I got a new job um, 
and the new job, I made more money. Um, I had to give up the company car, but I worked from home. Um, so it was nice that I worked from home until coronavirus hit. And when coronavirus hit, uh, everybody was home. <laughs> and now we were around each other all the time. She never went to work. Um, so it was just really shitty. It was really shitty. Um, and we were always fighting, just always, always fighting. And um, my son was starting to get older. And the town that we were living in, she didn't like the school system. She claimed the school system was trash in the town that we lived in. And she said the school system where she grew up, in the town she grew up in, where her parents lived, was like an A-plus school system. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, I don't want to live in this house that we were renting. She goes, I don't want to live in this house anymore. Now, listen, she wanted to buy a home. And I'm not a fix-it guy, okay? I'm not a hammer and nails guy. You know, I, I can watch like a YouTube video if I want to figure out how to do those kind of things. But like I'm more of like, as you could probably guess doing the podcast, I'm more of like a computer technological guy. Like I could do stuff like this, but I'm not a hammer and nails guy. I can't work on a car or anything like that. Like that's just not who I am. And she wanted to buy a home. And that idea always scared me too. And I always verbalized it to her. Like, I don't care about ever buying a home. You know, like, I don't care. Um, but the only place she would buy a home was in this Pleasantville town. If you, some, guy, some of you guys will get that reference, some won't. But in this Pleasantville town where she grew up. Um, and she basically gave me this ultimatum. That if I didn't buy a house in Pleasantville, four miles from her job, three miles from her family, if I didn't buy a home, she was going to divorce me and take my kids. And at this time, I had to make a decision. So guys, that's where I'm going to leave this podcast. I'm going to leave you on another cliffhanger. Um... I appreciate you guys listening to this one. I know it was a bit heavier than the past ones. Like I said, I'm not going through this anymore. So telling the story, you know, it's heavy. Um, but it doesn't hurt now that I'm done. It doesn't hurt telling the story. Um, in fact, it's cathartic. It's cathartic that I can tell the story. Um, you know, you might have heard my voice flutter a couple times, but no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm escaping. I'm escaping. And I'm going to tell you guys in the next episode about what happened, the house, the ultimate betrayal, and uh, how I'm coping, okay? Please stay tuned, guys. I really, really appreciate you. Um, please, again, subscribe, like, rate, review, share, all that kind of stuff. Um, please follow me at dimming underscore the underscore gaslight. And as I mentioned, if you'd like to be on the show, I am accepting guests. You can email me at dimmingthegaslight at gmail.com. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time, everybody. Bye.